love for us to begin with uh, just kind of putting our hands out and uh, in a gesture of expectation that the Lord has something good for us today. Lord, we come humbly before you knowing that you are the source of all our life and blessing and goodness, Lord. And we ask, Lord, that you do it again, that you place something in our hands, plant a seed in our hearts of truth, of beauty, that will grow to bear fruit for your glory and for the good of our neighbors. We honor you today, Lord Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. It's good to see you again. Uh, my name is Albert, if I didn't meet you last night, and I serve as a superintendent in the Church of the Nazarene in Northern California, in the San Francisco uh, Bay Area. Now, what makes this week special? In Jewish practice, in the Passover Seder meal, uh, it begins with children asking four questions that, that kind of serve as a springboard uh, to tell the story of their people's liberation from Egypt. And the questions all start with the words, Ma Nishtana, what is different? What makes this night different from all others? On all other nights we eat hametz or uh, matzah. Why on this night do we only eat matzah, unleavened bread? On all other nights we eat all kinds of herbs. Why on this night do we only eat maror, bitter herbs? Uh, on all other nights we, we don't even dip our food once. Why on this night do we do so twice? And on all other nights, we eat either sitting up or uh, reclining. But why on this night do we all recline? Spiritual deepening week is not practiced by all Christians all over the world, but it's part of the life of this community of Treveca. And it's an important part of your annual rhythm. And so it's good for us to ask in that same spirit, what makes this week different and by extension, what makes this school different? What makes us different? Now, there are a lot of good reasons to attend a private Christian college. But uh, in my opinion, one of the most important ones is the opportunity to integrate your faith into your identity and your future vocation. Trevecca Nazarene University's mission is to provide education for leadership and service within the context of a Christian community. The world needs more people who are committed to Christ and his vision for this world, who are willing to serve and, when necessary, to lead. And so Trevecca is a Nazarene university, and what makes Nazarenes distinctive is that we believe we are called to be a holy people. And that's what we're going to spend time exploring uh, this week. That's what makes this week different is we are going to spend some time leaning into who God has created us to be. And my prayer is that God is going to meet you during these chapel services and throughout the week and in the days to come. Now, I grew up in a non-Christian family, as I mentioned last night, uh, a non-Christian immigrant, nominally Buddhist home just outside Toronto, Canada. Uh, and because my parents were only nominally Buddhist, we didn't go to temple, uh, we, didn't, we didn't worship there, we didn't have a family shrine at home, and so I didn't really have much of a religious uh, background. Now, English is not my parents' first language, uh, so holy, for me, when I was growing up, was a word that you put in front of other words 
in order to emphasize amazement. And, and, and my dad worked really hard to learn English, um, including he wanted to know all the common idioms and the slang. So when he was wowed by something, he would say, holy moly, or, or he would say, holy cow, or holy smokes. My favorite was when he would say, holy mackerel. Like, and I really think we should bring that one back, you know? <laughs> holy mackerel. And later I learned, okay, holy had something to do with religion. And it meant sacred. It meant connected to God or, or angels or, or church or, or something along those lines. It wasn't until I became a Christian much later in life that I started to appreciate what the word holy actually means. And, and, and once you start exploring holiness, you realize it is a very unique and very, very special word. It's, it's a deep and profound word that really has no equivalent in the English language. That's how special it is. And, and we've lost our, our understanding of of what it means to be holy and, and, and holiness. We've, we've lost that. And I really think it's time for our generation, your generation, to rediscover and reclaim these words. Reclaim these words. I pray that by the end of this week, they're yours. These are your words. We need to keep this word alive. It means something. And, and holiness, it, it's like the ocean. It's, it's an idea that... And, and, uh, and an identity and a way of being that we can spend our whole lives exploring and feel like we're just barely scratching the surface. Now, if there's one thing that ought to be central in our understanding of God, it's that God is holy. It is God's defining attribute. What does it mean? Well, in Hebrew, the word is kadosh, which is an adjective meaning sacred or, or set apart. But, but holy, when we use it to describe God, does not mean set apart as in like physically over there. Not that kind of set apart. It, it means more like set apart as in different from, from everything that is common. It means special. It means one of a kind, without compare. Just like we sang this morning, holy, 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 there is none beside thee. It means unique, unique. In other words, no one is good like God is good. No one is merciful like God is merciful. No one is just like God is just. No one is creative like God is creative. No one loves like God loves. God is without equal. There is no one like God. The phrase holy, holy, holy appears twice in the Bible. Once in the Old Testament, once in the New Testament. And R.C. Sproul observes that the Bible says God is holy, holy, holy. Not merely that he is holy or even holy, holy, but holy, holy, holy. The Bible never says that God is love, 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 or mercy, 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 or wrath, 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 or justice, justice, justice. But it does say that God is holy, 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 and the whole earth is full of his glory. So if, if, if holy means unique, 
And God is holy. And that means by definition, no one else and nothing else can be holy. At least not the way God is holy. You can't, you can't have two holy people or two holy things because as soon as you do, they're not holy anymore. Because it means one of a kind. Literally means without equal, without compare, right? Right? It's impossible. So if that's true, then how do we explain the words of Peter? Where he writes, Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your heart on the, uh, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. As obedient children, don't conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. And he says, But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, Be holy because I am holy. So, so we're called to be holy in all that we do, but only God can be holy. So what do we do with that? Well, let's set that aside for a minute and just ask, what if? What if we could be holy? What if holiness became our defining characteristic, just as it is for God? What if when people thought of Christians, the first word that came to their minds was holy? Because that's not the case. Not at all, not even close. In 2007, a major study explored what young people really think of Christians. And the top five responses were, number one, anti-homosexual. That was the top response. 91% of people, it's the first word that came to their mind. And the research revealed uh, that people just don't just think that Christians oppose homosexuality. They actually believe that Christians show excessive contempt and unloving attitudes towards people across the LGBTQ spectrum. I am heartbroken by that. We all should be. Because Jesus says we're, gonna, we're not going to be known by our homophobia, but by our love. It doesn't get any better after that. I mean, the second, the second uh, word was judgmental and then hypocritical, followed by old-fashioned. That's why I wore jeans today, by the way. <laughs> I'm cool, right? Um, and then too involved in politics. And I think that last number has probably gone up. I mean, this was 15 years ago, right? Has our reputation changed since then? I doubt it. If anything, maybe gotten worse. A 2017 research poll, just a few years ago, revealed that atheists and agnostics had warmer feelings towards every other religious group, including Jews and Catholics and Buddhists and Hindus and Muslims, than they did towards evangelical Christians. And I've heard some Christians say, well, we shouldn't care what outsiders think. But the Bible is very clear. It teaches that we, we should have a healthy concern for our reputation among outsiders. Uh, Paul says in 1 Timothy 3 that overseers in the church must have a good reputation with outsiders so that they will not fall into disgrace and, and into the devil's trap. He says we should show perfect courtesy to all people. And Jesus says by this everyone will know. Everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. He says I pray that, uh, the, that all of them may be one, Father. Just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe 
you've sent me. And the writer of Hebrews 12, 14 couldn't have made it any clearer when he said, make every effort to live in peace with everyone and to be holy because without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Christians are not thought of as holy people. And that, my friends, is a big problem. The word Christian has become co-opted and compromised in many parts of the country. Did you know that public trust in pastors is at an all-time low? Every year, the Gallup organization conducts a poll to measure perceptions of the honesty and ethical standards of various professions. Nurses are top of the list, 89%. It's awesome, followed by doctors and then teachers. And 52% believe that police officers are trustworthy, and only 39% think that pastors are trustworthy. So what in the world am I doing here? Right? I'm comforted by the fact that we're not at the bottom of the list. That distinction would go to members of Congress. 8%. Okay, so got a ways to go before we hit bottom. The church in America has been in decline for decades. U.S. membership, uh, church membership has dropped below 50% for the first time since we started tracking these things. Uh, below 50%, down from 73% just 20 years ago. The median worship attendance of all U.S. congregations has been cut in half, just, just 65 people in one generation. During the pandemic, one out of three practicing Christians... Stop going to church completely, whether online or in person. Compared to the general public, evangelical Christians are the least likely to believe that climate change is real. They are the least likely to support efforts to address racial injustice. They are the least likely to support immigration rights. More than half of white evangelicals in the United States believe that Antifa was behind the January 6th Capitol riot, even though that claim has been widely and repeatedly debunked. Evangelical Christians are the least likely to follow health orders during the pandemic. Now, I don't say all of this to condemn the church. Believe me, I don't. My intention is not to condemn the church. There are plenty of people doing that already. I'm just telling you what the research is indicating. I love the church. I love the church. I will give my life to serving Christ in the church. What I am saying is that we are different from our non-Christian neighbors, but not necessarily in a good way and not in the ways that matter. What ought to distinguish us is not our views on politics or social issues or even what we do on Sunday morning. What ought to set us apart is that we are a holy people who follow a holy God. And if that is not what defines us, we have lost our way. We've lost our way. And that is nobody's fault but our own. <laughs> Can't blame anybody else. That's our fault. Because God has made it clear that that's who he is. And that's who we are called to be. And as we'll talk about later this week, God has empowered us. God has empowered us with everything that we need. To be a holy people. And so what would happen if we devoted ourselves to being holy in all that we do? Just as God is holy. Holy in the way that we work. Holy in the way that we learn. Holy in the way that we play and rest 
and holy in the way that we love. Holy in the way we worship, in the way that we treat people, in the way we see and experience the world. What if we were holy people? But how do we do that? <laughs> right? Oh, by definition, only God can be holy. So what can we possibly do? How do we possibly do what God is asking? How can I be holy? Well, I want to read again the passage that we looked at just earlier. It's good to kind of read it twice. It's from Isaiah 6, verses 1 to 8. And Isaiah writes that in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And above him were seraphim, each with six wings, and with two wings they, they covered their faces, and with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And at the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe is me, I cried. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. And then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal, in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. And with it, he touched my lips and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And I said, Here I am, send me. And what is going on here? What is the significance of this scene in Isaiah's vision? Well, I want to show you a short video from the Bible Project that I think will help us to understand. You've probably heard the word holy before, or at least sang it in a church song once or twice. And for most people, this idea is really just connected to being a morally good person. So. God is holy because he's morally perfect. Yeah, that is part of it. But in the Bible, the idea of holiness is even bigger and more rich. What it's really describing is how God is the creative force behind the whole universe. He's the one and only being with the power to make a world full of such beauty and life. And so all these abilities, they make God utterly unique, which is the meaning of the word holy. So a helpful way to think about God's holiness is by using the sun as a metaphor. The sun is unique, at least within our solar system, and it's really powerful. It's the source of all this beautiful life on our planet. And so you could say that the sun is holy. And you can actually take this metaphor even further in that the whole area around the sun is also holy. Yeah, because the closer you get to the sun, the more intense it gets. Yeah, exactly. So that very power and goodness that generates all this life is also dangerous. I mean, the sun, if you get too close, will annihilate you. And in the same way, there's this paradox at the heart of God's own holiness. Because if you're impure, his presence is dangerous to you. And not because it's bad, but because it's so good. And so the first time we see this paradox of God's holiness, it's in the story of Moses and the burning bush. So God tells Moses to take off his sandals because he's standing on holy ground. 
and Moses covers his face in fear, and God says, hey, don't come any closer. It's intense. It's actually that intensity of God's holiness that's explored even more in the stories about Israel's temple, which was the main place where God's holy presence was located. And at the center of the temple was this room called the Most Holy Place, it's the hot spot of God's presence. And whether you're an Israelite living in the land around the temple or a priest working right in the temple, you're in proximity to God's holy presence, which is dangerous. Yeah, this is a problem. So how's it supposed to work? Well, in the Bible, the solution is that you need to become pure. So like being morally pure. Yeah, and that's easy enough to understand. But the Bible spends a lot of time talking about another kind of purity, being ritually pure, which is a state where you separate yourself from anything related to death, like touching things like diseased skin or dead bodies or even certain bodily fluids. All these make you impure. And becoming ritually impure isn't necessarily sinful. What's wrong is waltzing into God's presence when you're in an impure state. And so that's why God gave the Israelites very clear instructions for knowing when they were impure, steps to become pure, so that they could go into the temple again. So that's what the book of Leviticus is about. Right. But it doesn't stop there. This idea keeps developing. So later in the scriptures, we find this really interesting story by a prophet named Isaiah. And he has this crazy vision where he's in the temple and he's right in God's presence. He's totally terrified. Yeah, he knows the rules. He shouldn't even be in there. And he's worried about being destroyed. And then this crazy creature called a seraphim. Yeah, that is a crazy creature. (laughs) Totally. So it flies over with a hot coal, and then it sears Isaiah's lips with the coal and says something really weird. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. So this burning coal somehow makes Isaiah pure. Yeah, it's remarkable because normally if you touch something impure, it transfers its impurity to you. But now here's this new idea where you have this coal, this very holy and pure object, and it touches Isaiah and it transfers its purity to him. Isaiah is not destroyed by God's holiness. He's transformed by it. I mean, the implications of this are just huge. But there's one more development this time from another prophet, Ezekiel. And he has this vision where he's standing at the temple and he sees water trickling out from it. And then that water turns into a stream and then it grows into a deep river that starts flowing through the desert, leaving this trail of green trees behind it. And then it flows into the Dead Sea, making everything fresh and alive. So instead of becoming pure first and then going into the temple, here God's holiness comes out from the temple, making things pure and bringing them to life. What does it all mean? So we don't know until we meet this man, Jesus. And he claims that he's fulfilling all of these ancient visions, but in surprising new ways. So Jesus, he went around touching people who are impure, people with skin diseases, a a woman with chronic bleeding or dead people. And when he touches them, their impurity should transfer over to Jesus. But instead, Jesus' purity transfers to them and actually heals their bodies. Jesus is like that holy coal in Isaiah's vision. Right. And Jesus claimed that he was the human embodiment of God's own holiness and that he and his followers were now God's temple so that through them, God's holy presence would go out into the world and bring life and healing and hope. And so this is why Jesus described his followers as having streams of living water flowing out of them. So this is our part of the story where we find ourselves now. But where is this all heading? 
So the last pages of the Bible end with a final vision about God's holiness. This time it's by a guy named John. And in his vision, we see the whole world made completely new. The entire earth has become God's temple. And Ezekiel's river is there, flowing out of God's presence, immersing all of creation, removing all impurity, and bringing everything back to life. How do we become holy as God is holy? By allowing his holiness to touch us, to purify us, and to transform us. In other words, holiness begins with God and is transferred to us as we become aware of and respond to his presence. Jesus is like that hot coal that was touched to Isaiah's lips. And through him, we can be made holy. And through God's Holy Spirit living in us, the world can be made holy. So holiness is not a set of behaviors that we adopt or a persona that we can take on and take off. It's not performative. It is not event-based. Holiness is about who God is and who we are and the relationship that he makes possible between us. And so if we understand the call to be holy as an invitation into a relationship with God, as an invitation to follow Jesus, to stay close to him so that we can learn from him and enjoy him and be transformed by him, our everyday routines begin to change. We begin to change. Our choices begin to change. And all that we do begins to become holy. Our sense of what brings life and what brings death begins to align with God's understanding of these things. Our sense of justice becomes like God's sense of justice. The way we love begins to look more the way that God loves. The way we forgive starts to look the way that God forgives. We begin to become holy in all that we do. In other words, be be holy is not a command to try harder. It is an invitation to come closer. And so if you have felt so burned out by religion and so weary of the state of the church, if you are turned off by the witness of Christians, you are not alone. And the good news is that God is kind of tired of it too. But he loves us too much to leave us there. And Jesus is making all things new starting with us, especially us. And he's not going to rest until he's completed this good work that he started in us, until, Paul, until, as Paul writes in Philippians, we become blameless and pure, children of God, without fault, shining as lights in the world. God is holy, 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 and he desires to share his holiness with us, all of us. God does not intend for us to be set apart from the world. He wants us to be set apart for the, for the world, for God, and for the world. And that's what we're going to talk about this week. I'm going to ask the worship team to come back up. And just as uh, Pastor Shauna uh, suggested earlier, I want you to look at your feet. 
And as we worship in this last song, I'd like to invite you to actually remove your shoes and stand as if we are standing on holy ground. Now, if you know, uh, there's actually a, a, uh, a new kind of treatment that is often described as uh, grounding, where there's something therapeutic about our feet or our skin actually touching the earth. Now, this is uh, not, not actual ground, like soil outside. But in that same spirit, let's feel the ground beneath our feet a little more closely. So let's remove our shoes as we sing together. Thanks for joining us for chapel today. Be sure to check back every Tuesday and Thursday for our next gathering.